Well, good morning, church family. You know, we use that phrase a lot, church family, and it's right that we do. As we've been studying the book of 1 Timothy, it's very clear that in the Word of God, when we think about church, we don't think of church like a family. We think of church as God's family. That's what God's Word says. We are the, the household of God. And we're in this section in 1 Timothy where he's giving these specific instructions, that is Paul to Timothy, about how the church of God is to function. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but not all families are exactly alike, right? <laughs> really, yeah, no, families are, are different. And when Paul writes to Timothy, he wants to make sure that Timothy and the church in Ephesus and then churches down through the ages understand that when God talks about the church family and how it's supposed to function, he has a very particular idea in mind. And, and so God's word goes into great detail in these verses, helping us to understand what the church of God is ultimately to look like, how we are to function as a family. You know, my wife, um, she discovered that our family was different from her family very on in our dating relationship. Uh, she came to a birthday party that we were having for, uh, for myself. My family was throwing me a family birthday party. We'd been dating a few months at this point. And when she came to the party, it came to that, that time when I was opening gifts and opening cards. And, and at, at the encouragement of the, of the family, kind of in a teasing way, when I would open a card from a member of the family, I would read the card out loud, including the message in the card. And, uh, and sometimes I would embellish what they had said, you know, like my parents when they said, you know, we love you, and I'd say, you're our favorite son, and things like that, right? So I would embellish it a little bit. We were having, having fun with it. But there's Hannah sitting there thinking, he hasn't opened my card yet. Is he actually going to read my card out loud? And she's like, she tells us, they're like breaking into a cold sweat at, at the thought of this. Now, because I'm not that big of an idiot, of course, I knew if I wanted to remain dating this girl and eventually marry her that I shouldn't read what she had to say out loud. And so I didn't, I didn't do it, although I'm sure I probably teased a little bit and maybe pretended as I did. But, but families are different, and the reason I share with you that story is for this reason. You know, when Timothy received this letter from Paul, what we know is that whenever Paul or the other apostles would write letters either to churches or to pastors of churches like Timothy or Titus, these letters were then read out loud in front of the entire congregation. So although this letter was from Paul to Timothy, as verse 1 and 2 tell us, when Timothy received this, it was understood that this was not just a letter that he kept for himself, but that he ultimately read to the congregation, and then ultimately that that letter was circulated and passed on to other churches also. Now, think about that. Up to this point in the letter, I would say if I was Timothy, I wouldn't feel so bad about the things that Paul had written to me thus far. Like, none of the instructions uh, are all well, that embarrassing or all that telling. In fact, they'd be very helpful for the church to hear uh, these things. But when we come to chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, this is the one section that could make somebody feel maybe a little bit like Hannah felt at the idea that her note to me would be read out loud. Because if you listen to the scripture that was read, in these set of verses, Paul comes and he's given Timothy and then through Timothy to the church instructions on how the church is to care for its leaders. 
And so I could see that Timothy, after reading this letter himself, realizing that he would then read this to the rest of the congregation, could feel like, oh man, should, should I read this part, part of the letter? It kind of feels a little self-serving. Paul's telling me to ultimately tell the church how to care for, for me. And so I could see how this might be a little bit awkward for, for Timothy, but, but ultimately... This is God's word. And so even for me preaching a passage this morning on how the church is to care for its leaders, ultimately this is the word of God. This is what God wants for his people to, to hear. And so I hope that Timothy didn't feel all that awkward when he read it the first time to his congregation. And, and we should be uh, happy to embrace and to hear what it is that God has to say. In verses 17 through 25, Paul moves away from talking about how you care for widows in the church now to how you care for its leaders. And the very first instruction that he gives is in verses 17 and 18. Look at these with me. Let's dive in. Verse 17 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Right here, Paul is giving the, the first of his uh, three instructions about how the church is to care for its leaders. And the thing that he says right there in verse 17 is that elders are worthy or are to be given this thing that he says double honor. When he talks about an elder being worthy of receiving double honor, he, he is talking in that word worthy of that, that they are, are owed. It, it's something that they are due, and, and what they're due is this thing that he calls double honor. And the question is, what is double honor? What does he mean by that? Well, as we're going to see here as the text unfolds, there's no doubt that what Paul has in mind here when he refers to double honor is, is first and foremost this idea of financial provision for the leaders within the church. And there's two big reasons why we can say that. First, that word that he uses for honor was a word that was used in the ancient Greek, and it was a word that was used in reference at times to the honorarium that you gave to a physician who had cared for a patient. And so it was a familiar term that somebody who was to care for somebody else, like a physician, they were to receive payment or remuneration for the services that they performed. And since Paul has been talking already in this letter, especially back in, in chapter 3, about the work of an elder and how they're to care for and watch over and guard the congregation and to keep them from evil, or in other words, to keep sickness of false teaching from entering into the church... It makes sense contextually here that what he has in mind when he uses the phrase double honor is that he has the idea of being providing financial provision for those leaders in the church. But what makes us know for sure that Paul is talking about that one of the ways you care for its leaders is through financial provision is verse 18. For the scripture says, not Paul, but the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. As we'll see in a moment, Paul here is quoting, this is really fascinating, I'm going to get to it in just a moment, but, but let me just say this, he's quoting from both the Old Testament and he's quoting from Jesus. And so he's pointing to these two passages within the scriptures that have to do with a worker receiving his due wage. 
an ox gets food, he says, for its work. And you pay a day laborer a wage for their work. They receive financial compensation. And so therefore, there's no doubt that in Paul's mind, when he talks about giving an elder honor, he's talking about giving them financial remuneration, compensation for the work that they are doing. Just as an ox receives food for the work it does, as a day laborer serves its wage, Paul is saying the way that you care for your elders is you make financial provision available for them. Now, there is also, though, to this, this idea where he says double honor. And so it, it begs the question. When he says double honor, is he saying that you should pay a pastor or elder in the church double what anybody else in the church makes, right? They're worthy of, of double honor. Is that, is that what he has in mind? And we can say most likely that's not what he has in mind. Because that word honor does have a, a dual meaning or a twofold meaning. Honor can also be used in the context of personal respect. And so when Paul talks about the type of provision that you are to give to an elder or a leader in the church, when he's talking about the, the type of provision, he's talking about, yes, you are to give financial provision, but you're also to show that individual personal respect. That's the, that's the twofold idea of this double honor. It's not about paying them twice as much as anybody else. It's about giving them personal respect, recognizing the role that they have. When he wrote to the church in Thessaloniki, this is what he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 13. Now we ask you, brothers, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. In other passages in Hebrews, it talks about honoring and submitting to your elders so that their work would not become a burden. It's a difficult task in ministering within the church family and, and shepherding and watching over the flock and guarding the flock. And so this idea of giving them double honors is to say, make sure that they're financially cared for and provided for, but then also recognize them in the work. It doesn't mean that an elder is better than anyone else in the church. It doesn't mean that when you see a pastor and elder, you bow down and kiss the ring. We don't do that. That's not what this kind of respect is about. But it's recognizing the task before them, not making light of their service in the Lord. So first he says, here's how you care for them, through financial provision. And then he says, here's the type of provision you are to give, financial provision and personal respect, that's what you are ultimately to do. And here's just a, a side note. I just want just to point this out because I do it at other times. If Paul has to write to Timothy and through Timothy to the church and has to give instruction to a church about how it's to care for its leaders, why do you think that is? Why does God have to give any of the commands that he gives, any of the instructions that he gives in his word? Like if he goes out of his way to tell us how to care for widows, and then he says, here's how you're to care for elders, why does he have to give us specific instruction in that? I think the answer is pretty obvious, right? It's not natural for us to do it. It's not natural for us even to, to think about these things or to recognize what we are to do with widows or elders or, or with false teaching. The instruction is here to help lead and guide. Remember how I said every family is different? Paul's saying, you want to know how the church family functions? This is one of the aspects of what a church family does. But notice here 
that he doesn't just talk about the type of provision, but he goes out of his way in verse 18 to show the reason behind this, the reason for the provision. He quotes two unquestioned authorities to bolster his insistence on, pi- on pastoral care, specifically in the realms of financial provision. The first person he quotes is Moses, inspired by God in Deuteronomy 25.4, when he says, For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. He literally quotes the Greek translation of the book of Deuteronomy, verses 25 and 4. He doesn't leave anything out. Just a word-for-word translation. He quotes Moses to say, here's why we do this. Now, I think that's an interesting illustration for him to use. Do not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. What's Paul doing there? He's trying to to show that elders um, should be cared for through financial provision. So so why does he use this argument? Well, it's it's an a fortiori argument. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's basically saying, listen, if you will take care of your ox, a beast of burden that does work for you, if you're, if you're going to take care of that animal, how much more should you take care of those who serve you in pastoral ministry? And, and so that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to set up. He's trying to, to make a point here. And then, and then notice, Paul uses this same argument when he writes to another church, the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he doesn't just tell the church in Ephesus, this is how you are to care for your leaders, He also says it to the church in Corinth. Look at this, starting in verse 7. He says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grape? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, God has given us examples in his word of what it looks like to give financial care for individuals. And it's not right, or it's, 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 yeah, it's not right to, to withhold taking care of those who labor for you in the ministry of the gospel. And in this text, Paul's not arguing for himself. He's actually arguing for those who were serving in Corinth because he wasn't there at the time. You know, I've heard people say that, you know what, uh, a pastor shouldn't re- receive financial compensation or, or financial provision because Paul was a bivocational minister. The reality, though, is, is that is only a half-truth because there were times in Paul's ministry, as the book of Acts records, where he was bivocational in his ministry. But then there were other times when he received his living through the care of the churches in which he was ministering. And so that's why when he comes to the church in Corinth and he comes to the church in Ephesus, he says, by all means, those who labor among you, provide for them. And he goes back to the Old Testament. And literally, he says, you think that passage in the Old Testament was written so that we take care of our oxen? He's like, do you see what he just did there with that text? 
That passage wasn't actually written for you to know how to take care of your oxen. God intended that passage to eventually point forward to how you're supposed to take care of your own pastors and elders. That's the deeper meaning of this passage and why it was given. But then look at he doesn't just simply quote from the Old Testament. He quotes from the words of Jesus. He quotes Jesus directly. The worker deserves his wages. Jesus said that. This is a word-for-word duplication of Luke 10, 7. And you know what's so cool about this? I don't know if you caught it, if you saw it. He says that we should do these things because the scriptures say that we should. And then he quotes the Old Testament. And then he quotes the words of Jesus. And what does he just call the words of Jesus? Scriptures. He is he has put an equality with what Jesus says with what the Old Testament says. And you know what's even more cool about that? is that Luke 10, 7, think about this. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. We don't know, somewhere maybe around A.D. 60 or so. Maybe earlier, it's, it's, it's hard to say. But Paul is quoting from the Gospel of Luke, which means that Paul would have had to been familiar with the Gospel of Luke. And if he's writing this in A.D. 60, that means that the Gospel of Luke had to be written what? Even before Then. And so this continuity of the scripture, of Paul affirming what, what Luke would record of Jesus' words, it's just, a, it's just this small little thing, but it's so powerful to show even how Jesus' words were understood to be scriptures and even how the gospels were accepted by this, by this point. So what's the reason then for the provision? It's really simple. It's God's design. It's God's design. Listen, he had it in mind all the way back in the Old Testament that those passages would point forward to today in the church's care for its people. Jesus had it in mind. It's God's design that the church care for its elders. But Paul also makes abundantly clear that there's a condition for the provision. Did you see the condition? It's not just that the provision is, should be made, and it's not just that there's a reason behind it, but he also gives a condition. He says very clearly twice what the condition looks like. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The condition that is ultimately being given here is faithfulness to their role. Paul is calling upon the church to evaluate its leaders. Are they doing the work of the ministry? There had been abuses throughout church history of men entering into the pastorate or, or becoming bishops, especially within the Catholic church, and simply using that title and that role to, to receive financial provision and not doing the work. And Paul says the church guards against this because you are looking at pastors who rule well who give oversight and who, and who do their work of teaching and preaching, that they're laboring in this. So there's a condition to it. And it's the church's responsibility. Do our elders, do our pastors, are they fulfilling the role that they've called to? Are they, all the way back in chapter 3, above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled? It, it is a serious calling. It's a big responsibility those who serve in that way faithfully are to be cared for financially. They are to be given respect in what they do. This is how we care for it. But make no mistake, they are to do this faithfully. 
So the church is called to care for its leaders in this way. You know, a lot of people then ask the question, right? They're like, well, what, is that, what does the financial provision look like? How much, ultimately, is a church to provide for its people? Paul doesn't go out of his way to, to give specifics. He does use Jesus' words that say a laborer is worth his, his wages. I think the simplest way to think about this for any church, including our own, is to consider the fact that you want your elders and pastors to be able to do the two things that they're talked about here, that is to rule well and devote themselves to preaching and to teaching, instructing the church. You want them to be able to do that. And if the church has the means, they should provide for their pastors and elders in a way that that they're not hindered in fulfilling that. That a church cares for them in a financial enough way that they are not distracted. I mean, think about it in your own workplace. If you call someone to a serious job within your workplace, the last thing you want, especially if it is a demanding job and it takes focus and it takes attention, the last thing you want is that person that you've hired to be working somewhere else to make ends meet because you know and I know that they're going to be distracted from the work that they're called to do ultimately for you. And so I think the wisdom that ultimately God's word gives us here, the, the direction of that, is that the church needs to ask themselves, are, are we providing for our pastors in a way that they can give themselves to, to this work? Because I think you know, and the church has been so gracious here. I feel very blessed to have been a part of this church for almost two decades. And I know I speak for the other pastors and elders on staff who, who serve. We've seen the graciousness of our people. And you as a church have shown your understanding that our role as pastors and elders, like, listen, I'm never off, right? Like, you're never off as, as a pastor. The reality is it's a 24-7 kind of a, of a thing. You never know when the call's going to come. And, and, and I've been grateful to see how you as a church have supported, I think, the pastors and elders of this church, not just in financial ways, but also the sabbaticals that we are allowed to take every five years and, and to be able to get that rest and refreshment. I was talking to somebody recently and we were talking about how our church went through the whole COVID pandemic and how trying that was on so many churches. And something hit me, Valley Center Community Church, like something hit me. You know, right as the COVID pandemic was hitting, we were just finishing up a season where over the last two years, every single pastor on staff had just completed a three-month sabbatical. And so going into the COVID pandemic, we had all experienced a significant season of rest. And if you want to see God's kindness to the church or even to us, we went into that pandemic and all of the things that we had to deal with and all the sessions having just been provided for by you the ability to have those seasons of rest. And so as I look, I'm like, wow, look at God's kindness on us. I often wondered, like, how are we able to make it through that? How did we not get burned out? It was God's grace, but God's grace even coming to us before the pandemic to have a church that said, you know, we're going to give our pastors these times I, it was just the wisdom of this church and one of the ways that you provided for us, and I'm so grateful for it, and the blessing of it is that we were able to get through that time and to still be a healthy church and to have a healthy pastoral staff. And so, so thank you um, for, for that. God calls his church to, to care, and I know that I and the others on staff would say we've been recipients of that care. But if you notice, it's not just financial Paul goes out of his way to say there's another way in which the church cares for its elders. Did you see it in verse 19? He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, we've got to break this down. It can be a little tricky, and let me explain. 
Paul's instruction here is very simple. What he's saying is you care for your leaders by protecting them from false accusations. One of the ways that you care for your leaders is not just through financial provision, but by guarding them, protecting them from false accusations. Now look, this is something that I've not seen happen all that often, but it's something that can and does happen. I don't know if you know this, but the nature of the work of the ministry is that more often than not, we're involved with people in some of their worst moments. We're involved with people sometimes when they're engaged in some really heinous sin. And and our calling is to often come to those people and look to correct them and to bring them back to the word of God. Do you think that people who are walking in the flesh instead of the spirit view pastors and elders very highly in those moments? Let me just give you the answer. They don't, okay? And, and when, when somebody's walking in the flesh and not in the spirit, one of the things that they do and we see examples of is they can attack and they can make accusations. And Paul knows this to be true. One of the blessings of a pastor, I often say, is that you're often with people, if you're in the church long enough, on their first day, on their best day, on their worst day, and on their last day. You're with them on their first day because often we'll go and we'll visit somebody in the hospital. You're with them on their best day, often when they get married and they're all dressed up and they're looking at each other and there's just love all around. And then often you're with people on their worst day when sin in their life comes out, when they're confronted with a tragedy, when when sin has made a mess of things. I think what Paul's talking about here is the reality that sometimes on their worst day, people can say and do things. And when they make a charge against an elder, What Paul is saying is, listen, just because they're an elder, you need to treat them like you would anybody else. And and the the scriptures have laid forth a pattern going all the way back to Deuteronomy 19.15 when it says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And when Paul wrote to the church again in Corinth, the second time, he said, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of what? Two or three witnesses. What's the idea here? Paul's not saying that if I sinned against you, you can't come to me and say, Dave, you spoke to me in anger. Dave, you you lied to me, you know, uh, about this. No, you, you can do that. That's not what this is about. This is, this is about when a serious accusation is being made against someone who's in leadership within the church is that you need to treat it like you would any other accusation. You take it seriously, but the reality is that they are innocent until proven guilty. This is the idea because Satan loves nothing more than to attack the church of God. And if we let every single accusation that's made against a pastor stand, if they're guilty until proven innocent, it undercuts the ministry of the gospel. And it's a very simple way in which Satan can ultimately do his work in discrediting Christ and his church. 
And so all Paul is saying is, be aware that Satan hates you and hates the church, and he is the great accuser, and so he will stir up people who are often not walking in the spirit, but in the flesh, to bring accusation against the people of God. I know of a pastor one time who went to, uh, had family in town and was, was going around and showing them the different places in their community, similar to a community like ours. And one of the places that was there was a casino and the, and the, and the pastor's family members who were out of town says, you know, I've never seen what a casino is like. And so they drove in and somebody who was in the church, this is the funny part of the story, <clears throat> saw them there and began spreading the rumor that the pastor had a gambling problem. Now, why that person was there at the casino anyway to make that, how do they? But wasn't doing that. That wasn't the case. And ultimately, it had to be addressed. But, but that was a slander, and it wasn't true. John Calvin has said this. I think these are powerful words. When he pastored years ago, He said, none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. This comes not only from the difficulty of their duties, which are so great that sometimes they sink under them, or stagger and halt or take a false step, so that wicked men, finding many occasions of finding fault with them, but added to that, even when they do all their duties correctly and commit not even the smallest error, they never avoid a thousand criticisms. It is indeed a trick of Satan to estrange men from their ministers so as gradually to bring their teaching into contempt. In this way, not only is wrong done to innocent people whose reputation is undeservedly injured, but the authority of God's holy teaching is diminished. And so Paul's just saying, church, care for your leaders, not just financially, but but watch over them. Don't let false accusations rise up. Now, lest we think that an elder or a pastor is above any type of correction, did you see what happens next in the text? Check this out. As for those who persist in sin, Paul says, and who are the those? Elders now. Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, Timothy... I charge you, church in Ephesus, I charge you, Valley Center Community Church, to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. What's going on here? Paul has just said you are to care for them through financial provision and respect. You are to care for them by protecting them from false accusations. But then he comes in these verses and he does something very simple. He says, just because they're an elder, just because they pastor the church, it doesn't mean that they are in a different category of Christian. He says, if they are in sin, then the words of Jesus in Matthew 18 on church discipline apply just as much to your elders as to anybody else. That's why he says, I want you to follow my words without prejudging or showing partiality. Just because they're an elder, just because they're a pastor, it doesn't mean that they're above being corrected, being called out on their sin, or being treated as any other person in the church would be treated if they persist in sin. Because Jesus had said, if a brother sins against you, you go to that brother 
and you confront them on their sin. If they will not listen to you, then you bring two or three others as witnesses who have experienced the same thing, and you bring them to them so that they might turn and repent. But if they won't listen to the two or three witnesses, as Timothy has just said earlier you need to do, well, then you bring it before the church. Just because they're an elder, just because they're a pastor, doesn't mean that you don't bring their sin before the church as you would anyone else who will not repent. And do you see the reason why, he says? So that the rest would stand in what? Fear. Basically, what Paul's saying is like, I want the church to know that, that no one is above correction. No one is above the judgment of God. Yet at the same time, what Paul doesn't say here, but he says elsewhere, is this. Just as no one is above judgment and confrontation and accountability for their sin, the other beautiful truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, for an elder and pastor as it is for any other believer, is that forgiveness is found as well. Amen? I mean, because this is heavy stuff. It's telling us about an elder being confronted in their sin, but the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim as Christians is, yes, we care for our elders by confronting their sin and taking it seriously, but we do that so that anyone who is confronted on their sin might also know and experience the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. For all have sinned, including this guy up here, and fall what? Short of the glory of God. And yet the mercy and grace of God comes to sinners. Hallelujah for that, amen? Now, let's be very clear that there is often consequence for sins. And there can be significant consequences for an elder. Some sins of an elder can obviously disqualify them from ongoing ministry. And that's a reality. Does, does the fact that there's consequences for sin mean that God doesn't forgive us? Come on now. Does consequences for sin mean that God doesn't forgive us? No. It, it, he forgives us our sins, yet there are still consequences. The truth is, anyone who does sins knows that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And one day, we will experience the reality of the complete forgiveness of sins, even if there are consequences here on earth. Jesus said it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might what? Through him be saved. Through him live. This is, this is what we walk in. So church, this is how we care. We care through financial provision. We care by protecting our leaders from false accusations, but we care also by confronting our leaders when they are in sin praying and hoping that like anyone else, they would confess and then turn and receive the forgiveness that is theirs in Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate that in just a few moments through communion. But then Paul does one final thing, and it's in these following verses. It starts in verse 22. In light of all these things, look at what he says in verse 22. It makes total sense to me. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. You know, 
The laying on of hands was a symbolic act. Timothy himself experienced it when elders in a church would commission people to the ministry of a pastor or elder. They would lay hands on them. They're saying, I identify with this individual that they are called to this role. And so well, the first thing Paul does after saying, this is who elders are and here's how you care for them, is he says, in, in light of all of these things, don't be too quick to lay your hands on them. Because one of the other things that he says is, Listen, if you do lay your hands on them in some way, if you affirm someone for ministry and they're not ready or they're not qualified, he seems to indicate here that those leaders carry guilt with them as well because they were the ones who were called to shepherd and to guard the flock. And if you appoint someone to this task of ministry and they, and they fail in it because you didn't do your due diligence as a leader, Paul says you carry some of that with you. That's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? Ultimately, every person is responsible for their own sin, but he says, listen, leaders in the church, watch yourselves as well. Now, he's going to go, and he's going to talk just a little bit more about it in verses 24 and 25, but then in the midst of this, he says something weird. Did you guys, you guys laughed when we read it. I heard some of you laugh. Verse 23, let's look at this verse. In the midst of this, he, all of a sudden, he stops, and he says, specifically to Timothy, well, let me just read it in its context. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It's kind of a funky little thing. What's going on here? You're talking about elders and leaders and caring for them and not being quick to lay on hands, and then you give Timothy a very personal instruction. This verse actually makes a lot of sense in the bigger context. Paul has been talking about the responsibility to care for your leaders, and what does Paul do in the midst of talking to Timothy in the church? He breaks off and he says, let me care for you in a specific way. This reminds me, I'm talking to you about caring for leaders, broadly speaking, but let me tell you something for you. We don't know a lot about what's going on here, but one of the things that we know is that Paul had, or Timothy had some stomach ailments. And in the ancient world, water was not the best resource for healthy living. It was often polluted and it had bacteria and, and, other, and other problems. And so Timothy, trying to be a man who's above reproach, we can kind of infer from this text, recognizing that, that elders need to be self-controlled and shouldn't be drunk, he was, he was not drinking wine, which was one of the, the, the sources for, for, for pure water and he, and, or for, for, for a healthy drink, and he was giving himself only to water, and so it was, it was hindering him in his ministry. Health-wise, he was, he was being hindered. And so Paul says, hey, man, you got to take care of yourself. And don't let people prejudge you. If, if you need to drink some wine, he says, listen, no longer drink only water. He's not saying no longer, he's not saying drink only wine, but he's saying, he's like, listen, if your stomach's hurting you, uh, those water sources aren't the best, you can drink some wine, buddy. And so he's giving Timothy personal care in the midst of, of this. Now, I also believe that Paul has no problem with encouraging Timothy to drink wine. You know why? Like, trust me, I don't think I've ever encouraged anyone to drink alcohol in my life. <clears throat> I don't think I would do that pastorally. But I know that why he has no problem encouraging Timothy. One, because he knows it's what Timothy needs. And two, because he knows that Timothy has proved himself to be a faithful elder. And to be an elder means that you must have self-control. And so he knows that Timothy won't give himself to drunkenness. But then he goes back right after this, and he closes out our section, and I close with these verses. He then jumps back into his argument about laying on of hands not too hastily. He says, listen, the sins of some people are conspicuous. 
going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Paul has just told Timothy, be careful on how quickly you appoint somebody to be an elder for all the reasons I've talked about. But then he comes and he says, and here's the deal. If you are going to appoint them, do it prayerfully with great discernment. Because sometimes sin, it's insidious, it's conspicuous, it, it, it lays hidden. So the reason why you don't just simply appoint someone, but instead you appoint people with great care, is the fact that sometimes you, you don't know the person as well as you think you do. And so Timothy, guard yourself, guard the church. Make sure you really know the individuals, to know their heart as best you can, to see them be faithful in this. If they've, if they've shown themselves to do good works and have been faithful, then you should have no problem laying hands on them. That's what verse 25 is. But if there's any hesitation, if there's anything in your heart or mind that would give you pause, then he says you should, you should hold back on that. And when the church functions in this way, well, then it's functioning as the family that God has designed it to function. We care for widows. We care for women in the church. We care for our, our leaders. We care for one another. Because we are not a family like other families. Church, we are God's family. May he help us to function and to live as God's family is designed to. Amen? And let's pray together. Father, as we consider each week your words, Lord, that's what I'm praying. I'm praying that it would be your words that come through. That, Father, that which I've spoken even today that is ultimately not of you or in accordance with your will or desire for your people, Lord, that would fall to the wayside and what would rise to the surface is a clear expression of your desire and your will for your people. We thank you, Lord, that as we consider caring for one another and caring for our leaders within the life of the church, that, Father, our template, our model of care and compassion comes from you, the Father who has shown us abundant care and has provided and met every single one of, of our needs. And we thank you, Lord, that in the roles that you call us to, Lord, whether it's an elder or pastor in the church, whether it's a deacon, whether it's those who are called to serve in different ministries, that none of us goes about doing it in our own strength, but that your grace has provided the power, the means, and the wisdom, Lord, to fulfill your roles within the church for the glory of your name and for the good of one another. And so, Lord, continue to mark us as a people that come what may, we look to Christ we look to his power and his provision for all things. And even now as we come to the Lord's table, Lord, help us to celebrate that power and provision together as a family. In Christ's name, amen and amen.